All right, we will start with the chapter review for the last chapter, and then we'll move on. I think maybe we'll try something a little bit different this time, so we'll see how it goes. It'll probably be a shorter one. Uh, chapter summary, a culture of discipline. Key points. Sustained great results depend upon building a culture full of self-disciplined people who take disciplined action, fanatically consistent with the three circles. Bureaucratic cultures arise to compensate for incompetence and lack of discipline, which arise from having the wrong people on the bus in the first place. If you get the right people on the bus and the wrong people off, you don't need... Excuse me. You don't need stultifying bureaucracy. A culture of discipline involves a duality. On the one hand, it requires people who adhere to a consistent system. Yet, on the other hand, it gives people freedom and responsibility within the framework of that system. A culture of discipline is not just about action. It's about getting disciplined people who engage in disciplined thought and who then take disciplined action. The good to great companies appear boring and pedestrian, looking in from the outside, but upon closer inspection they're full of people who display extreme diligence and a stunning intensity. They rinse their cottage cheese. I hope that's the last time I have to hear that phrase. Do not confuse a culture of discipline with a tyrant who disciplines. They are very different concepts. One highly functional, the other highly dysfunctional. Savior CEOs who personally discipline through sheer force of personality usually fail to produce sustained results. The single most important form of discipline for sustained results is the fanatical adherence to the hedgehog concept and the willingness to shun opportunities that fall outside the three circles. So there might be good opportunities, but they're not great opportunities. And if they're going to pull you away from your hedgehog concept, then it's not worth it. And that's going to be a hard thing to turn down, I would assume. Unexpected findings. The more an organization has the discipline to stay within its three circles with almost religious consistency, the more it will have opportunities for growth. The fact that something is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity is irrelevant unless it fits within the three circles. A great company will have many once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. The purpose of budgeting in a good-to-great company is not to decide how much each activity gets, but to decide which arenas best fit with the hedgehog concept and should be fully funded, and which should not be funded at all. Finally, stop doing lists are more important than to-do lists. Chapter 7, Technology Accelerators. You know, as exciting as that sounds, sometimes when we try to move forward too fast, I think it's time to step back and remember the past. Because the past will eventually catch up with you.
We're gonna begin with a quote from our old friend Bertrand Russell. Most men would rather die than think, and many do. It was July 28th, 1999. Drugstore.com, one of the first internet pharmacies, was selling shares of its stock to the public. Within seconds of the opening bell, the stock multiplied nearly threefold to $65 per share. That's a lot of $2 bottles of booze. Four weeks later, the stock closed as high as $69, creating a market valuation of over $3.5 billion. Not bad for an enterprise that had sold products for less than nine months, had fewer than 500 employees, offered no hope in investor dividends for years, if not decades, and deliberately planned to lose hundreds of millions of dollars before turning a single dollar of profit. What rationale did people use to justify these rather extraordinary numbers? New technology will change everything, the logic went. The internet is going to completely revolutionize all business, the gurus chanted. It's the great internet land grab. Be there first, be there fast, build market share, no matter how expensive, and you win, yelled the entrepreneurs, even if it meant killing someone. We entered a remarkable moment in history when the whole idea of trying to build a great company seemed quaint and outdated. Built a flip became the mantra of the day. Just tell people you are doing something, anything connected to the internet, and presto, you became rich by flipping shares to the public, even if you had no profits or even a real company. Why take all the hard steps to go from build-up to breakthrough, creating a model that actually works when you could yell, new technology or new economy and convince people to give you hundreds of millions? Some entrepreneurs didn't even bother to suggest that they would build a real company at all, much less a great one. One even filed to go public on March 2000 with an enterprise that consisted solely of an informational website and a business plan, nothing more. The entrepreneur admitted to the industry standard that it seemed strange to go public before starting a business, but that didn't stop him from trying to persuade investors to buy 1.1 million shares at $79, despite having no revenues, no employees, no customers, no company. With the new technology of the internet, who needs all those archaic relics of the old economy? Or so the logic went. Me, I thought it was a bunch of bunk. At the high point of this frenzy, drugstore.com issued its challenge to Walgreens. The old stalwart. At first, Walgreens stock suffered from the invasion of the dot-coms, losing over 40% of its price in the month leading up to the drugstore.com public offering. So they left them an offering. They left their wife dead on the doorstep. Forbes in 1999, investors seem to think the web race will be won by competitors who hit the ground running. Companies like Drugstore.com, which trades at 398 times revenue, rather than Walgreens trading at 1.4 times revenue. Analysts downgraded Walgreens stock. And the pressure on Walgreens to react to the internet threat increased at nearly 15 billion in market value as it evaporated. Walgreens took to the bottle. What was their response in the midst of this frenzy besides taking to the bottle? For a crawl, walk, run company, Dan John told Forbes in describing his deliberate, methodical approach to the internet. Instead of reacting like Chicken Little, Walgreens executives did something quite unusual. They decided to pause and reflect. They decided to use their brains for a change. They decided to think. Slow at first. Walgreens began experimenting with a website while engaging in intense internal dialogue and debate. 
within the context of its own peculiar hedgehog concept? How will the internet connect to our convenience concept? How can we tie it to our economic denominator of cash flow per customer visit? How can we use the web to enhance what we do better than any other company in the world and in a way that we're passionate about? Throughout, Walgreens executives embrace the Stockdale paradox. We have complete faith that we can prevail in an internet world as a great company, yet we must also confront the brutal facts of reality about the internet. One Walgreens executive told us a fun little story about his remarkable moment in history. An internet leader made a statement about Walgreens along the lines of, Oh, Walgreens, they're too old and stodgy for the internet world. They'll be left behind. The Walgreens people, while irked by this arrogant comment, never seriously considered a public response. Said one executive, let's quietly go about doing what we need to do, and it'll become clear enough as soon as they just pulled the tail of the wrong dog. Then a little faster, they started walking. Walgreens began to find ways to tie the internet directly to its sophisticated inventory and distribution model, and ultimately its convenience concept. Fill your prescriptions online, pop into your car, and go to your local Walgreens drive-thru in whatever city you happen to be in. Zoom past the window with hardly a moment's pause, picking a bottle of whatever, or have it shipped to you if that's more convenient. There was no manic lurching about, no hype, no bravado, just calm, deliberate pursuit of understanding, followed by calm, deliberate steps forward. That's how they worked. Cold, deliberate, methodical. Killers, each and every one of them. Then finally they ran. Walgreens bit big, launching an internet site as sophisticated and well-designed as most pure.coms. Just before writing this chapter in October 2000, we went online to use walgreens.com. We found it as easy to use, and the system of delivery as reliable and well thought out as amazon.com, the reigning champion of e-commerce at the time. Precisely one year after the Forbes article, Walgreens had figured out how to harness the internet to accelerate momentum, making it just that much more unstoppable. It announced on its website a significant increase in job openings to support its sustained growth. From its low point in 1999, at the depths of the dot-com scare, Walgreens stock price nearly doubled within a year. And what of drugstore.com? Well, continuing to accumulate massive losses, it announced a layoff to conserve cash. At its highest point for more than a decade earlier, drugstore.com traded at a price 26 times uh, than what it was at the time of this writing. It had lost nearly all of its initial value. While Walgreens went from crawl to walk to run, Drugstore.com went from run to walk to crawl. Perhaps Drugstore.com will figure out a sustainable model that works and become a great company, but it will not become great because of snazzy technology, hype, and an irrational stock market. It will only become a great company if it figures out how to apply technology to a coherent concept that reflects understanding of the three circles, goddammit! technology and the hedgehog concept. Now, you might be thinking, but the internet frenzy is just a speculative bubble that burst. So what? Everybody knew that the bubble was unsustainable, that it couldn't last. What did that teach us about good to great? Well, let's be clear. The point of this chapter has little to do with the specifics of the internet bubble, per se. Bubbles come and bubbles go, like dames. It happened with the railroads, it happened with electricity, it happened with the radio, it happened with the personal computer, it happened with the internet. It'll happen again with the unforeseen new technologies. Yet through all of this change, great companies have adapted and endured. 
Indeed, most of the truly great companies of the last hundred years, from Walmart to Walgreens, from Procter & Gamble to Kimberly-Clark, from Mark to Abbott, trace their roots back through multiple generations of technology change, be it electricity, the television, or the internet. They've adapted before and emerged great. The best ones will adapt again. Here we have a brief aside. Technology and just change is nothing new. The real question is, what's the role of technology? Rather, the real question, how do good to great organizations think differently about technology? We could have predicted that the Walgreens would eventually figure out the internet. The company had a history of making huge investments in technology long before other companies in the industry became tech-savvy. In the early 80s, it pioneered a massive network system called Intercom. The idea of Intercom was simple. By linking all Walgreens stores electronically and sending customer data to a central source, it turned every Walgreens outlet into a country into a customer's local pharmacy. You could live in Florida, but you're visiting Phoenix and need a prescription refill. No problem. The Phoenix store is linked to the central system, and it's just like going down to your hometown Walgreens. This might seem mundane by today's standards, but when Walgreens made the investment in Intercom in the late 70s, no one else in the industry had anything like it. Eventually, Walgreens invested over $400 million in Intercom, including $100 million of its own selling system. Touring the Intercom headquarters, the Earth Station Walgreen, is like taking a trip through a NASA Space Center with its stunning array of sophisticated electronic gadgetry, wrote a trade journal. Walgreen's technical staff became skilled at maintaining every piece of technology rather than relying on outside specialists. It didn't stop there. Walgreen's pioneered the application of scanners, robotics, computerized inventory control, and advanced warehouse tracking systems. The Internet is just one more step in a continuous pattern. All the way to the money. Walgreens didn't adopt all this advanced technology just for the sake of advanced technology, or in fearful reaction to falling behind, no. It used technology as a tool to accelerate momentum after hidden breakthrough and tied technology directly to its hedgehog concept. Ah, the loyal hedgehog. A hedgehog concept of convenient drugstores, increasing profit per customer visit. As an interesting aside, as technology became increasingly sophisticated in the late 90s, Walgreens' CIO, the Chief Information Officer, was a registered pharmacist by training, not a technology guru. Walgreens remained resolutely clear. Its hedgehog concept would drive its use of technology, not the other way around. My god, that was an interesting fact. The Walgreens case reflects a general pattern. In every good to great case, we found technological sophistication. However, it was never technology per se, but the pioneering application of carefully selected technologies. Every good to great company became a pioneer in the application of technology, but the technologies themselves varied greatly. Kroger, for example, was an early pioneer in the application of barcode scanners, which helped it accelerate past A&P by linking frontline purchases to backroom inventory management. This might not sound very exciting, inventory management is not something that tends to rivet raiders. But think of it this way. Imagine walking back into the warehouse, and instead of seeing boxes of cereal and crates of apples, you see stacks and stacks of dollar bills. Hundreds of thousands and millions of freshly minted crisp and crinkly dollar bills just sitting there on pallets piled high to the ceiling. That's exactly how you should think of inventory. Every single case of canned carrots is not just a canned carrot, it's cash. 
as cash just sitting there useless until you sell that case of canned carrots. Now recall how Kroger systematically shed its dreary old small grocery stores, replacing them with nice big shiny ones. To accomplish this task ultimately required more than $9 billion, cash that would somehow have to be pulled out of the low-margin grocery business. To put this in perspective, Kroger put more than twice its total annual profits into capital expenditures on average every year for 30 years. Even more impressive, despite taking on $5.5 billion of junk bond debt to pay a one-time $40 per share cash dividend plus an $8 junior debenture to fight off corporate raiders in 1988, Kroger continued its cash-intensive revamping through the 80s and 90s. Kroger modernized and turned over all its stores, improved the customer's shopping experience, radically expanded the variety of products offered, and paid off billions of dollars in debt. Kroger's use of scanning technology to take hundreds of millions of crisp and crinkly dollar bills out of the warehouse and put them to better use became a key element in its ability to pull off its magic trick, pulling not one, but two, and three rabbits out of a hat. Gillette also became a pioneer in the application of technology, but Gillette's technology accelerators lay largely in manufacturing technology. That's right, think about it this way. The technology required to make billions, literally billions of low-cost, high-tolerance razor blades. When you and I pick up a Gillette razor, we expect the blade to be perfect, and we expect to be inexpensive for shave. For example, to create the sensor, Gillette invested over $200 million in design and development. Most of it focused on manufacturing breakthroughs and earned 29 patents. 